From seven days of the week to the seven wonders of the world, culture is shaped by sevens, and the BMW 7 Series is no exception. Be welcomed in with automatic opening doors. Shape your experience behind the wheel with a curved display. Or recline in the back seat and escape into the 31-inch theater screen. Reshape the way you drive in the redefining BMW 7 Series. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. See your local BMW Centric today for a test drive. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So Tracy, remember uh, a few weeks ago or a few months ago when we had that episode about how the bond bull market might come <laughs> to a disastrous halt and people might lose billions all over the world? A few months ago. I, I know it's been a, a long year so far, or at least it feels like a long time, but it was only just in January, right? Oh, man. Has it really been that recently? It has been <laughs> yeah. a long year. That's my excuse. So we talked yeah. to we talked on that episode to Paul Schmelzing. He's a uh, at Harvard University and a researcher at the Bank of England. And mm -hmm. he had a very interesting sort of theory about how this incredible bond bull market that we've seen could come to a disastrous halt via some combination of inflation and banks having to liquidate their bond holdings, and it was all pretty gloomy. Yeah. Well, you know I'm a sucker for financial market history, so the thing I really liked about that conversation was that he went back over 800 years of bond market history to draw an analogy with the current situation today and basically made a big call saying that we could have a bond market massacre that's probably one of the worst um, we've ever seen, right? Absolutely. So here's the good news, though. Uh, <laughs> not everyone agrees with Paul. And in okay. fact, today we're going to do a follow-up episode, and we're going to talk to someone who takes the opposite view, that there is no uh, bond market disaster in the, uh, in the offing. Great. Let it never be said that we don't present both sides of the story, right, Joe? Exactly. Even if someone has to wait several months, or maybe in this case, just a few <laughs> weeks, even if you have to wait a while, we always like to have the uh, the opposite argument on the Odd Lots podcast. Excellent. So with us today to discuss this is Srinivas Tiruvedantai of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. And recently he wrote a uh, piece of research arguing directly... Uh, against Paul Schmelzing's argument, and he explains why the uh, bond market is not in some massively precarious state and ready for a sell-off. So I say we uh, get to his argument. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Let's get him on. Hi, right, Srinivas, thank you very much for joining us on the Odd podcast. Thank you, Joe. So, uh, first of all, let's let's talk about the uh, Paul's piece. So he argued he in this 
blog post that got shared quite widely from the Bank of England. He looked at historical bond market sell-offs, and he noted that there are a few different kinds of bond market sell-offs. Some have to do with the um, creditworthiness of the issuer, the sovereign. Some have to do with inflation. Some are more uh, technical. And he sort of zeroed in on this idea that in the 60s, we had this episode of uh, an intense bond market sell-off due to inflation, and that there were also similarities to the early 2000s in Japan, what he called a value-at-risk shock. Um, You don't really find the analogies helpful. So tell us about uh, your work. Uh, So, you know, I am also a sucker for uh, long history. But in the case of the bond market, you know, the problem with long history is that we are in a world of fiat currency, uh, which has really existed for 40 years. And even if you include the history entirely from the gold standard, the end of the gold standard era in 34, you know, you could say 70 years. But the problem with the pre pre gold step and the pre uh, world war era is that most of the time there was a credit risk for sovereigns because they had to convert it into gold so so this is a really key point that i just want to make sure people understand which is that when governments were on the gold standard there was actually a risk that they could just run out of money so yeah. that they they were kind of like a company in that yes. regards they you lend money to a company the company might go bankrupt now, with governments mostly on fiat currency, there are still risks, but they're not about running out of money because fiat money can just be sort of created massively. And so, in other words, you look back 800 years, back when we were on the gold standard, those just aren't really comparable. They are, they are not okay. comparable. Um, so so the real issue is we are, we are looking at the post-World War II history in terms of trying to understand and understand the bond market. And so... He's the the main comparison is to the to the late sixties. People are worried mostly about a long term bond sell off. They're not worried about a one time sell off like we've had this year. I mean last year and we had in two thousand thirteen as well. Um, I mean it is pretty stomach wrenching because a bond investor is not the one who's used to volatility, of right. course. Uh, but so what is the difference? Key differences between the nineteen sixties and today. So if you go back to the sixties, and I was just looking at the data. The U.S. unemployment rate was, I think, less than four. Um, now, you would say that we are pretty close to it, but it, there is just no comparison between the uh, late 60s labor market in terms of tightness in today, just based on the unemployment rate. And the reason is, if you look at the participation rate for prime age males, it was north of 90%. Mm. Everybody who had, a, who had a job and wanted a job had a job, pretty much. Um, that's not the case today. Uh, and the unemployment rate clearly understates the level of slack that is there in the economy. Number two, if you look at the global conditions, they were even tighter. Um, Germany had a sub-1% unemployment rate at one point. Japan had less than 2%. Uh, All over the developed world, you had the labor markets were drum-tight. They were, in fact, importing guest workers in Germany at that time. Um, It might seem really strange in this day where we want to shut down immigration, but they were importing guest workers. And if you look at the capacity utilization rates, they were all north of 90%. I mean, pretty much there was no spare capacity. So, So companies, I mean, the labor had bargaining power and companies had pricing power. So there could be the pass through and a wage price inflation, which you need for inflation to pick up. All the conditions were there. On top of that, you also had a situation where the Fed 
was accommodative. I mean, if the Fed says, no, I'm not going to accommodate anything and I'm going to raise rates the moment I see some inflation pick up, then you're not going to get the, you're not going to, even if you have a wage price spiral, it's not going to get started, right? Um, somewhere around the 60s, late 60s, the Fed started to change its tone for whatever reasons, maybe they didn't fully um, understand. But I don't know, it's not like they didn't fully understand. They did understand. If you look at Arthur Burns, there was a recent paper uh, in one of the Feds. Uh, he was really sophisticated, not the caricature that's made out to be. He was incredibly sophisticated. But I, he he thought that more needed to be done and the cost of doing it via monetary policy would be expensive in terms of unemployment. Srinivas, could you maybe just elaborate on the link between um spare capacity and treasuries because i'm not sure i entirely follow your your thinking on that point okay so to get a, a long-term treasury sell-off like the 67 to 71 sell-off um that 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 paul was talking about um you need inflation to pick up you need to have sustained pickup in inflation otherwise you're not going to get a treasury sell-off if inflation mm-hmm. hangs around two percent there's no reason for treasuries to sell off um, and what are the conditions that lead to a sustained increase in inflation? You need tight labor markets and labor bargaining power. You mm-hmm. need tight capacity so that the the labor costs can be passed on into prices. Um, and, you know, of course, that sets off the wage price spiral. But if you that, that alone is not enough. I mean, a Fed needs to be accommodative of higher inflation for whatever other considerations they may have. Another point that you bring up in your work are the financial conditions. Yes. You, first, you talk about the real conditions are being very different. There's a lot more spare capacity, spare labor globally than there is now. You also say that financial conditions today are much different than they were in the 1960s. Explain how they're different and why this too is important. Okay. So if you look at the private sector balance sheets, whether in the U.S. or globally, um, which is both the asset side and the debt side, scale to GDP – uh, they are very big. You know, the assets to GDP is at a record level. Debt to GDP is private sector is not at a record, but close to it. Um, so the other way to think about it is GDP is a broad measure of income in the economy. Income as a percentage of the assets, asset base, is low, right? Um, now, the, the the income servicing the the debt and the assets is is low. So if you're hiking the interest rates, if the interest rates are going up, then for the leverage players, you know, you're now makes it less and less viable. The other way to think about it is if interest rates go up, valuations have to come down, right? But when the balance sheet is big, the economy is no longer functioning like a normal economy, or I, the word normal is very bad. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's just, like the economy in the 60s, where you could focus on the real sector and ignore the balance sheets because the balance sheets are uh, a function of the economy rather than the tail wagging the dog. But when balance sheets are big, you're getting a strong feedback loop from both sides. In fact, the balance sheets are are having a preponderant effect on the economy, like wealth effects or like the housing bubble, right? You know, the, right. The, when, when it starts affecting the real economy in a meaningful way, now you have to start worrying about what the impact of, if you have inflation and the fear of inflation and interest rates go up, what does it do to debt service? What does it do to asset valuations? And then mm. the feedback into wealth effects and the ability to borrow. 
I mean, I was hoping for a, a kind of cheery picture and a rebuttal <laughs> of the bond market massacre thesis, which this is, but it's not exactly optimistic because you're arguing that essentially the economy remains super fragile and we have lingering risks in the financial system and um, certainly sort of vulnerable borrowers who would be in a lot of pain if we did get a sharp rise in interest rates. It's not it's not yeah. a happy scenario. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy depends on who you are. You know, I mean, I think if you if you can remain in this uh, so-called Goldilocks scenario where inflation doesn't pick up a lot and interest rates remain a lot, you can sustain this. And we have sustained this for five, six years now, you know. So um, I'm not saying that it's going to be sustained. Uh, I would be tend to be on the more bearish side on that. That said, um, I, yes, <laughs> bottom line is if you look at the, asset side of the economy and the and the debt side of the economy the us has actually had some made some progress on the debt side but if you look at it globally it is much worse than it was in 2008 so one way or the other you have to bring those down um, mm. what is the painless way to bring those down and i don't know i don't think there's a painless way to do it mm. so we it's still pretty bleak all right before we before i forget we don't you you work at the uh, jacob jerome, levy forecasting jerome levy forecasting center my apologies it has the word forecasting in the name. So I'm going to ask you for a forecast. Uh, back in the early 80s, the 10-year yield, it topped out around 16%. Right. Today, the 10-year yield, as we're recording this podcast, 2.48%. People, you know, so it's been this incredible over 30-year decline in interest rates, which right. corresponds to a bond market rally. For the last 10 years, at least, you always hear, oh, it can't go any lower. And then it in- invariably does go lower. So what's your forecast? Where could we see long-term interest rates go before this cycle ends? When uh, the next recession will, I think, bring the ultimate lows in, in bond yields. I think the 10-year will drop below 1%, probably half percent. Below and, around half a percent. So we're, we're at around 2.5% now. So there's still a lot of capital gains wow. to be had. <laughs> and the 30-year, I think, will will go to one5 Um We have seen these kind of interest rates. You know, this, uh, the, in, in Europe, we have seen negative interest rates. So it's not like... And this is the safest asset in the world. I mean, in the next recession, there's going to be a lot of political turmoil as well. You know, we can imagine already with, with the kind of weak recovery, we have all kinds of political uh, pressures um, globally. And there won't be too many safe assets left. Right. Hmm. Yeah, can we talk more about the political pressures? Because, of course, um, we are seeing these expectations of fiscal stimulus out of the Trump administration driving inflation expectations to a certain extent and also impacting Treasury yields. Do you think that's warranted? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you're going to get a fiscal stimulus of the order of, I mean, if you go back to uh, candidate Trump's uh, plan, um, uh, I think I'm I'm going back a year ago at least. Uh, I, I looked at some of the plans. If you take them at face value, you're talking about a six hundred billion dollar uh, st- stimulus uh, on the upside, and maybe even something on the uh, low side of three to four hundred billion. And let's say some of it is tax cuts for the for the very upper income, which is most of it is going to be saved, so offset by uh, increase in saving. Even so, um, you're talking about uh, $150 to $200 billion in corporate taxes, tax cuts, and $400 billion in personal tax cuts. Um, that's a huge stimulus, even before we talk to, uh, start talking about infrastructure spending. Uh, that's going to move the needle. Th- that One of the things I'll tell you, that's why in the short term, we have reduced our own bond positions. Mm. Because 
um, this is an unprecedented step. Usually, we are long-term investors in bonds. We have ridden this 30-year bull market being invested fully all the time because you can't be too smart about these. We are not traders. Um, that said, because of the potential for stimulus and for uh, a short-term reflation, um, we have actually reduced our position in bonds. So your basic position is that the Trump stimulus, if it does happen, could really move the dial yes. on bonds, but not so much that it shakes the underlying trends that we've seen yes. over the last 30 plus yes. years. Yes. You know, going back to the 1960s for a second, and we, you and I had uh, an exchange on Twitter kind of about inflation and what what really drives it. And you made an interesting point, which is that Inflation is not really, you know, I think, who is it, Milton Friedman? Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary yes. phenomenon. And I think you said inflation is always and everywhere a political phenomenon. And that really we have this fantasy that there could be a federal, the Federal Reserve could just have this dial and turn it to a 2%, 3%, 4% inflation, and that it's just sort of this uh, technocratic thing that right. we just sort of set the level and sort of aim for it. And what you say, it's never really like that, that it's a, sort of a myth or a fantasy that um, that the Fed could do that. Go, explain this a little bit further, this misconception that everyone has about what really drives inflation. In fact, today, I think the Wall Street Journal had an, had an article about people we don't understand inflation. And I think um, a week ago, they had a paper uh, by Cecchetti and a bunch of others on what predicts inflation. It's inflation itself, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I think the, the, here, is, here is a basic issue with uh, the monetary view of inflation. If the monetary view of inflation were, were right, we would, we would have a pretty stable velocity. But we don't have velocity of money keeps changing around a lot, you know. So, um, which means the very basic, the, the money... Um, Quantity of money equation doesn't work. Now, you know, they have bells and whistles, they have sophisticated explanations now, but those are all post-facts uh, uh, justifications, rationalizations rather than an, uh, and a basic understanding. But, you know, I mean, inflation is a very complicated process, uh, but let's start with what, what happens, what you, what you need to get inflation up. The most um, important component of costs is, of course, labor costs, right? So if you look at the economy, is a circular flow. Um, so if prices go up and they reflect in higher incomes, okay, then people have bid up, then those prices can be justified by people having higher incomes because they can go and, again, purchase those things, right? right? Which then bids up the prices. That's how you get a wage price spiral. I'm keeping the Fed out of the picture for now. In, in our economy, so, so the critical thing is the way the labor should have some bargaining power to be able to say, okay, prices have gone up, I need to be able to get my wage, wage hikes. But if you, if you have a, an economy with a tremendous amount of slack, which we have had over the last six, seven years, but generally speaking, if you look at the last 30 years, most of the time we have spent above Nairu, according to the CBO's definition of Nairu. If you look at the unemployment rate, most of the time it has been above Nairu. Um, whereas if you go back to the 50s and 60s, we used to spend most of the time under Nairu. Okay? Um, so... The labor doesn't have the bargaining power. And of course, unionization has declined. There are other factors as well. There's global competition. It was not as, there was no, not, not much global competition in the 50s and 60s. So we don't have inflation, the underlying dynamics for the wage price spiral. Uh, on top of that now comes in how does the Fed policy change and what are the reactions to it, which there is some political element to it, clearly. The Fed is not completely immune to politics, much as we would like to believe. Um, 
And if you, so the, the Fed has done some research. I think the the Yash Mehra he has broken down the inflation uh, into three separate uh, distinct episodes. The period up to 66, post-war period up to 66, then 66 to 82, and 82 onwards. So if you look at the early period, um, there is not much pass-through from uh, the, the wage-price inflation dynamics never really got started because the Fed used to take the punch bowl. You know, William mm. uh, Martin, who has made the famous statement, he was, our job is to take the punch bowl um, away. Um, and this broke down in the 66 to 82 period where there was much more of the wage price spiral dynamics. And then post-82, it has not. But there is more than just the Fed taking away the punch bowl. Um, Joan Robinson had a very perceptive essay. You know, so much credit is given to Phelps and Friedman, but all of these was presaged by Joan Robinson and the the, uh, the the other Keynesians. You know, she I think this was in 61. She was writing about how we have such tight um, employment, high employment um, in the immediate post-war era, but we haven't seen the inflation pickup. And she said, part of this is this is a solidarity and the sense of national purpose that the war engendered. And there was a sense of restraint among labor, uh, especially and, and unions, because there was a lot, more, a lot more unionization back then, that we should, you know, we should not be greedy or, you know, mm. we have to, there is a larger shared purpose. Um, and, you know, I was talking to uh, David and he, my partner, and he was telling me the other day um, that in uh, that there was a general sense that you would get wage hikes that would be commensurate with productivity. That was the general sense in the 50s and the 60s. What broke the the trend was, I think it was a machinist union. I, I I'm not 100% sure it was a machinist union in 66 who got a six percent raise or something like that. That that broke that trend. <laughs> and then the other unions now obviously had to catch up to that. And then you then you got started with the with the wage price spiral. Well, I mean, on that note, is there any chance that we get something that encourages some sort of wage increase in the coming years? Because you're painting, again, like a pretty bleak picture that involves um, basically uh, labor being on the back foot for many, many more years to come, which is kind of depressing. Yeah. Yes, and the, this is the this is the problem, you know. I mean, uh, generally speaking, if you look at this, I'm going to now now I'm going to talk about long history. If you look at the history of <laughs> capitalism, generally speaking, um, it has been uh, outside of wars. There have been very few periods of inflation, uh, hmm. and the only period of inflation that we've had significantly outside of wars is the 1970s, and that has somehow. Uh, colored the whole profession that, oh, inflation control, inflation targeting, this and that. But hmm. really, capitalism is characterized not by scarcity, which is what inflation is a, a manifestation of in some sense. Of course, there's other other things too. Uh, it's not just scarcity as we just uh, uh, looked at. Um, it's, uh, it's also... Capitalism is generally characterized by glut. You always are looking for markets. You know, that's the whole thing. I mean, even Adam Smith understood that. Right. That's kind of, that's the aim of capitalism, right? Even Adam Smith, uh, he didn't completely say it in so many words, but he said that, you know, the extent of specialization is constrained by the act, the um, the extent of the market. So the, the real constraint has always been the market demand in some sense. So we just have a couple of minutes to wrap up here. And I want to sort of get your take on ultimately, you know, Probably the bond bull market isn't going to last forever, <laughs> no. right? I mean, some point it will turn around. 
you mentioned the Trump stimulus as being a cause to think that in the short or medium yes. term rates could rise. But beyond the stimulus, it strikes me that at least in theory, Trumpism represents or could represent a real ideological break from the way the government and policy has been run. It's not just the stimulus. It's a sort of disdain or skepticism of free trade. It's a disdain for, I think, a lot of like what we sort of free uh, free enterprise assumptions. So I'm curious, A, whether um, what you think could ultimately be the thing that breaks the bond bull markets back, and B, whether a f- more muscular, fully fleshed out Trumpism beyond just, okay, here's a stimulus boost, could be the kind of thing that really turns things around. Oh, yeah. I mean, something much more muscular than just a, just a stimulus um, could certainly, I mean, yeah, nothing is set in stone. You know, you right. can uh, things are always uh, always subject to change, and there's always uncertainty um, about these things. And so, yes, something could do that. And I think the way the bond bull market typically ends, and if you look back in the in the history, is when private balance sheets are lean. You go back to 1949, which is the end of 46 or 49, is the end of the bond bull market. The private balance sheets, there was no debt. Mm. Um, and stock valuations were incredibly crazy. I mean, you know, the dividend yield was several percentage point higher than dividend yield on than the 10-year yield you know so you're talking about assets that are yielding risk assets far far more than than cheap assets uh, than um, the risk-free assets and so um, you had a situation there's no debt tremendous amount of cash on the private balance sheet interest rates could go up a lot and nobody would be under stress because they had no debt they would, in fact, be benefiting from higher interest rate on cash. Um, that's the kind of, we won't necessarily get to that kind of situation. But let's say the next recession brought down asset values and debt. We already had some correction. We have further correction. And then we ease that process with even bigger, uh, running bigger deficits. And our debt goes to 150% of GDP or something like that. Then you have a situation where government debt is now a large part of the private assets, right? Uh, so, so they are... The, the private balance sheet is now much more heavily loaded on safe assets. And the risk assets are cheaply priced, relatively speaking. That's when you can, you can withstand interest rate hikes. It doesn't matter. I mean, interest rates can go up a lot. I mean, you look at 1981, wherever the home prices were, interest rates were already at 15%. So, you know, they could go to 20%, but people have already seen the worst of it. You know? So right. that's the kind of situation which leads to bond, bull, bond uh, bear markets. Thank you very much for joining us, Srinivas Tiruvedanta of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. Really appreciate you coming on. I learned a ton in that discussion. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. So, Tracy, I really enjoyed that episode. I love this. Uh, I love the fact that, uh, A, another big economic history lesson, but also <laughs> having the chance to discuss uh, sort of economic theory and also how it applies to uh, to the market. Yeah. Uh, well, talking about financial history, um, I thought he made a really excellent point about over the extremely long run, capitalism is not characterized by scarcity. It's kind of characterized by supply or abundance. That's the entire goal, right? And that that's intrinsically a deflationary force. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And this idea that the inflation that we saw in the 70s 
has be oh, has yeah. loomed so large in our economic thinking today. And you have to, you know, you have to realize that probably a lot of the people who are in charge of policy right now, or the people writing, doing strategy <laughs> at big funds and banks, probably a lot of them cut their teeth during that inflation and the period right after, and have sort of. Uh, always been living in that time vicarious or living in that time ever since then. Yeah, that's a super interesting point that I think probably doesn't get enough attention. Just to play devil's advocate, though, I I mean, there is a sense of um, there's a tinge of this time is different around this whole argument, right? And that the the bull market in bonds can go on for substantially longer than it ever has in all of history. And I, I understand his arguments. One thing I wonder about, and I think Paul Schmelzing got to this idea, was the difference between the financial system now versus uh, ancient history, right? Like now we have a much more complex system. We have banks with sophisticated risk models and we have the potential for a negative feedback loop if we did get a big sell-off in bonds. And we didn't really talk about that. Yeah, anytime, you know, as you say, there's always that this time is different fear. And every time you have a bull market and you're saying, oh, it could go on forever, it's sort of or a long time, that's sort of a reason to be nervous. On the other mm-hmm. hand, there's just been so much skepticism yeah. about this it's whole true. bull market. So usually when you have a a long bull market you just have you just accumulates more and more believers over time but this bull market has really never had many believers as far as i can tell so sort of from a psychological uh standpoint yeah you know, kind of i mean either but. way someone is going to be surprised here right either the bull market keeps right. going for a really long time or it comes crashing down either way it's it's going to be a big deal On that note, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow Srinivas on Twitter at Teasri, T-E-A-S-R-I. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.